Okay. So as I was pulling in, I said, "There's a lot of lot of cars here tonight." And I remember when we when when we first got Celebrate Recovery started, we we're getting it up off the ground, and I was just really uh, amazed and and blessed and surprised that uh, this this CR group has grown uh, the way it has. And so uh, that is awesome. Um, congratulations, uh, happy blessings, if that's a, a good term to use. Um, I I uh, am proud of you guys, and um, and I know God is too. Well, uh, let's let's talk to him real quick for a little bit, and then we'll go ahead and, and get started. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. And I thank you for this group of people here tonight. And I ask for uh, a blessing. And Lord, my prayer tonight is going to be the same tonight as it has been for many, many years, and it's simply this, Lord, I just, I want people, uh, when they see me, not to see me, that they see you, and Lord, that when I look at other people, that I look at them through your eyes, so Lord, will you help us do that? Father, I pray that there's something that um, you want me to say, that that be said tonight, and Lord, that, um, that it's not me talking, that it's you, and Lord, I just... I ask that you use my story to bless and touch people, and, and Lord, we, we give you tonight. We ask that you bless it. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Wow. So, uh, yeah, you guys have grown. It's great. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's great. Um, very exciting to see you guys uh, all here tonight. So, um, thank you for the—who who donated the wonderful Purple Readers? Thank you so much. Uh, my last pair broke, and I'm rocking the purple ones tonight. So, um, how many? How many of you guys? How many is this? How many? Who in here is this your first time in Celebrate Recovery? Any first timers? Welcome to Celebrate Recovery. I like to say, "Welcome, family." This is your welcome. This is your forever family. Uh, we we uh, we're a family, and uh, the Bible says in one translation, and I don't know, maybe uh, Hank or Rhonda, you can you can help me out. What translation is it says that we're a, his peculiar people? Is the King James? It it actually says in the Bible that as believers we're a peculiar people. We're a bunch of weirdons, okay? We're a bunch of weirdos, and and people in recovery, we're we're a peculiar people. So if you're in recovery, um, you know it's like it's like if you've never been in recovery and you're around or if you're in recovery and you're around a bunch of people that aren't in recovery the language can be different it's like somebody took you and dropped you off on another planet and so if people that aren't in recovery they don't really understand the language cuz we have our own language don't we so um so welcome to your new forever family and we we hope you keep coming back uh and that's not just a a, a phrase or a cliche or a uh, um, something fun to say. We just we really want you to keep coming back. I've had people ask me um, uh, when I uh, celebrated just a couple uh, weeks ago, uh, twelve years of recovery. Um, they asked me to you know and, and asked me how I did that, and I said, well, one of the ways that I did that was I just kept coming back. And so we encourage you to just keep coming back. Things may, may, may not make sense right now, and that's okay. It doesn't have to. Things still don't make sense to me every day. But I just keep coming back, and, and so um, 
and that's what's made a lot of the difference in, in my life. So, do you guys, is it okay if I share some of my story with you tonight? I'll tell you how I kind of got in into this and, and how I got into recovery and, and some of the things that I do now. Um, so, in, in Celebrate Recovery tradition, um, for those of you who know or don't know, um, CR asks that you uh, write your testimony out, and I've done that. And, and we submit those testimonies. There's actually a training that tells you how to write your testimony. And in the beginning, when I first started sharing my story and started getting into Celebrate Recovery, I'm like, I'm not doing that. I mean, that's, that's got, this has got to come from my heart. I mean, this is my story. I don't want people telling me what I can and can't say. Well, there's a reason why we do that. There's a reason why. And it's because uh, we don't want people going off on a rabbit trail, and we want people to stay on target, and we want to be mindful of everybody's time. But... Um, Rhonda just she just told me she said you know we don't have uh, music tonight so you can you can have as much time as you'd like so I hope you guys packed a sandwich and a sleeping bag and all that stuff but uh, anyway um, I'm gonna share with you guys a little bit about how I got into recovery and what my life was like before uh, what caused me to get into recovery or what what drove me into recovery and then I'm also gonna share with you a little bit about what my life is like now that I've I, I'm in recovery and and the difference that God has made in my life, and, um, and primarily and especially through this program called Celebrate Recovery. So, I'm going to don the purple glasses. Is that okay? Things are much clearer now. Um, so, I want you guys to think, uh, put, your, put your time travel hat on, and how many of you guys uh, were born uh, before 1970? Raise your hand. Before 1970 or before. Okay. How many... Raise your hand if you were born after 1970. Okay. I want you to raise your hand if you didn't raise your hand, because that means you're dead. Uh, okay. All right. So put, uh, close your eyes and think back to 1970, for those of you who were around then, and, and what was going on back in, in that time. And that's when I came into this world, 1970. Um, I came into this world. But first, I want to introduce myself again to you. Sorry. My name is Dave. I'm a super grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I'm also a person in long-term recovery, and for me what that means is I've been clean since September the 23rd, uh, 2006. And as a result of that, as a result of that, my life has gotten a lot better. I've become uh, a husband to my beautiful wife, Tracy, right there, which I never thought would happen. Getting married, that was just like so weird. And, and uh, I've become a better son. Uh, a better person in the community all around my life has gotten a lot better um, because I switched to recovery. And um, so um, now that we've got those proper CR introductions out of the way with, um, I, um, I arrived into this world with issues uh, in 1970. Uh, my, my mother and father were both addicts. My, my mother was an addict and an alcoholic, and my dad, uh, I think he didn't really do so much of the substance, but boy, he liked to drink. And, um, and so... Um, they were divorced when, when I was born, and uh, my dad, uh, from what I was told, my dad showed up um, uh, at the hospital and created a scene, and they asked him to leave, and I never saw him again until I was t 10. And um, so um, I was partially raised by my mother's parents. Now, my mom's parents, my granddad was a Presbyterian preacher for 40 years, and my, my grandmother was a retired school teacher. Uh, she, she taught kindergarten, so she's just the sweetest sweetest little Ola, and they were some of the greatest people in the world um, and, and in my mind. And so I was raised by them, um, a pastor and his wife. And, but 
Um, I was also kind of shuffled around because they were older. Uh, they were in their maybe 70s when I was born. And so uh, they wanted to take care of me. Now, I have an older brother and I have an older sister. And um, we were all split up. All three of us were split up as kids. Um, we were in different foster care uh, homes. And, um, but my grandparents wanted to hang on to me because I was the baby. I was the youngest. And so I was partially raised by them, but I was also shuffled around from family member to family member and some foster parents uh, in there. Um, and my grandparents wanted to try and keep us kids together, but it was back then it was just, you know, to find a family that would take three kids, it was difficult. But they tried to keep us with, with relatives. And so during this time, it was really confusing, and, and I was kind of mentally, some of these people that I was living with uh, mentally abused me as a little kid, and, and I was also sexually abused. Um, by some members of my own family during that time. And so um, it, it, was, it was rough growing up. Um, even though my grandparents loved me, it was pretty rough growing up. Um, and I, I battled this, and it was, it, was a, it was a horrific broken home family dysfunction scene, um, and I, I, I battled that the best way I knew how. But I was raised right, and, and my grandparents made sure of that. Um, and I was in church all the time. Uh, my grandparents afforded me a really good Christian school education. They paid a lot of money for that. And when the church was open, I was there, uh, you know, every time the church was open. And I was raised right. Um, I was this friendly, outgoing extrovert. I was kind of like, a, the, the, you know, the, your typical preacher's kid, right? And so um, I stayed on the straight and narrow. I remember going on my first mission trip uh, when I was 13 years old to Europe. And I started, I was really getting involved in church life and church activity and missions and ministry at an early age and, um, and going to South America on, uh, on mission trips. And I, I think that's about the time that Satan recognized that, okay? So you guys are familiar with Star Wars, the battle of light and dark, good and evil. Well, guess what? It, it's still going on today. Uh, we have good and evil. And I think, so it, I think Satan looked at this situation and goes, you know, this kid has the potential to do something really great, and at whatever cost, I must stop that. And that was when I looked back upon my life, and I realized that that was when this battle of tug and war, uh, tug of war began for my soul. Um, and so um, at the age of 14, um, my grandparents couldn't take care of me as a teen uh, I was starting to get a little, little rebellious, um, starting to do teenager, dumb teenage things, and um, they, they turned me over to two cousins of mine to, to help raise me, uh, and they were just 10 years older uh, than I was, and they had a couple kids of their own, and so um, they turned me over to these two cousins, and th they were also in ministry, and I, I did some ministry trips in South America with them, and they were great Christian folks. And, uh, and, then, and then something horrific happened in my life, and, and, my, and my granddad died, and he was my role model. And, and uh, he was uh, just the best, my favorite person in the world, and he would do things with us as kids and taught us the right, right things, and my, my granddad died. Um, and so being a rebellious teen, I decided that I was going to do something different, and I was going to take life into my under, I was going to take control of my own life instead of being tossed around from family member and granddad had died. And I'm just going to, so I moved out at the age of uh, probably like between 14 and 15. I moved out on my own and, um, and I, was, I think I was only about 14 or 15 at the time. Now my grandmother continued to support me and finance me, but I was, I was uh, 
I was hanging out with these kids that knew how to smoke and, and drink and, and knew how to have fun. And, uh, and then uh, I think my senior year or my junior year of, of, of high school uh, at this Christian school, I, I was starting to act out and, and hang out with the cool kids. And, and I was invited not to come back to that Christian school the next year for my senior year. Uh, they called me into the office. The principal sat me down. He said, you know, you're a class clown. Um, you know, and I wasn't doing anything like really, really bad. We were just goofing off. And he said, we're not having you back here next year. So I entered the public school system where I met more kids who were a little bit rougher around the edges and started doing more things that were, uh, were, were really, um, really not the way I was raised. And so, um, I was stubborn and I was determined to live life on my own terms in my own way. And all that time, I didn't realize that I was being led astray by these bad influence. I was just a teenager. So, um, for the next 22 years, I made my own rules. Moved out of my own, made my own rules. I was living on my own, bunking with buddies, and, and I never really stayed in one place for too long. Um, I, told, I said I attended this Christian school at least until I was invited not to come back. I told you that. I uh, went to public school. Um, I never even graduated from high school. It was more important for me to go to the beach and skip school and be stoned on the beach and hang out with the surfer kids down in Florida than it was for me to go to school, so I never graduated. I quit uh, three-quarters of the way through my senior year, quit high school. So um, I, um, I stayed on the move, kind of just bunking with buddies here and there. I'd quit high school and uh, started doing more and more uh, drugs and, and alcohol. And, um, and about the time, about 19 or 20 years old, uh, I realized, man, I need a job. I mean, people aren't going to just give me beer and cigarettes for free. I need a job. So I started this job as a, at a grocery store. How many of you guys have heard of public supermarkets? Raise your hand. So we love Publix, right? Everybody love Publix? I still love Publix. So I started working as a, uh, as a bagger in a grocery store. And I just, I had, when I applied for this job, I think I was 19, 18 or 19 at the time, and I had, I had hair down here, and, uh, and, um, and I went in, and the guy, the grocery manager said, you got to cut your hair, you got to pee in a cup, and then maybe we'll hire you. And so I cut hair, and I peed in a cup, and I don't know how I passed that, but I did. And, um, and so uh, I started bagging groceries and just getting tips. And I wasn't a whole lot of money, but it was enough just to, you know, to, to buy beer and cigarettes and, and do all the, you know, all the party favors. And um, so what I didn't realize, though, that this, this, this simple bagger job turned into uh, a pretty lucrative career. It turned into a 15-year career with Publix, and I never intended that. And so while I started working at Publix, uh, that became my life. That became my friends, and so I become, or learned this really hard work ethic at Publix. And, uh, and the people that I worked with, they were, they were partiers. And so, um, not all of them. Don't, don't get me wrong. Not everybody that works at Publix is a party animal, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But these folks that I worked with became my friends. They became my family. And that was my new family. And I, I learned the strong work ethic. I was enjoying good benefits and a really good pay. And so, um, so that, that became this norm of working really hard, but I, I thought that if, if I worked really hard, I would counteract that by playing really hard. And I just thought, well, I, I'm bringing in the bacon now. I'm making the money now, and so I, nobody tells me what to do. 
So if I work hard, I'm going to party hard, right? It's not hurting anybody. It's just me. I mean, my family had abandoned me, so what do they care? Well, that became normal. That became normal over the course of, of 15 years. Um, I remember um, I'd stay out all night, come in, grab a shower without any sleep, and just head right back into work. Um, so it was just this, this was the mantra, work hard, party hard, work hard, party hard. And then one night in a drunken stupor, I was out with some friends. Um, you guys ever go to, every guys, do they have the bowling alleys that do the midnight bowling here? Where they turn out all the lights, they play all the rock music, and people get wasted and go bowling? Well, that was very popular uh, back when, when I was uh, at Publix, and I was, had this roommate. I think we had, there were four of us guys who were living in a house. Uh, we were all single. We were all partying. We were all working at Publix. And then I came home from work one day, and they said, hey, we're going Midnight Madness Bowling. You want to go? And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And so we get there, and the place is packed, okay? And, and, and so I walk in. There's music blaring. The black lights are going. And I walk up to the, the, get my bowling ball and my shoes, and uh, I said, well, we're here to go bowling. And they're like, well, you know, um, it, we're, we're full right now. You're going to have to wait for Lane. And I'm like, I'm not waiting for Lane. I was getting ready to leave. Finally, I said, oh, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. Lane, Lane, this Lane over here. And, I, and, and I'm not sure. I can't remember. It's been a long time. But I think it was Lane number 13 that was open. Okay? And so uh, I go, okay, well, we'll take Lane 13. And, and I said, well, I need a size 9 shoe. Well, we're all out of size 9 shoes. I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll come back. Well, you guys know why they give you bowling shoes, right? You guys understand physics of momentum and, right, force momentum? Because if you wear tennis shoes bowling, you're going to break your ankle. Guess who broke their ankle that night? Right here. And I didn't just, like, break it a little bit. I broke it bad. Broke it really bad. Snapped the whole thing in half. They carried me out of there in an ambulance. I was squealing and hollering. And, and uh, it took me four surgeries to correct that. Lots of metal, plates, screws. Um, and so, um, guess what? Guess what happened? I went home from the hospital with guess what? Prescription pain medication. You guys, this is, all this is making familiar sense. Is sounding familiar? So um, that's when I discovered the highs and the lows of prescription uh, medication. I was taking about ten to twelve Vicodin a day. This went on for years. Finally, I was sitting in jail after um, like. I don't know how many DUIs it was. I'd stop counting. I was sitting in jail, and I heard this little voice inside my head. And I, I remember it said, you need to go back and live with your cousins because that's when life was going good for you. They had you in the ministry. Things were calm. They were cool. You were doing good. You were happy. And you need to go back and live with them. But I didn't, um, you know, I didn't need that little voice inside my head telling me what to do. Um, so soon after that, I, I decided after 15 years I was going to retire from the grocery industry, and I, I went and lived with my sister for a little bit. I spent all this money over 15 years that I had saved at Publix. Blew it. More partying. Um, I started doing some stuff with a friend of mine as a, as a roadie doing rock gigs. You guys ever heard of Jimmy Buffett? Okay. Uh, and so we, uh, I, I didn't, I'm not telling you I worked for Jimmy Buffett, but I worked with a lot of his guys, and we did a lot of road stuff, Okay. And so um, I just, I did that for a, about a year to two years. And if anybody has ever done that, that's a hard life to live. I mean, partying like you're one of the band, like you're a rock star, 
I mean, that's rough. Traveling different cities, living out of hotel room. It's just, it's a rough life. I'd had enough of that, and it didn't take long for that lifestyle to beat me down. The drugs became harder. The hours became longer. The partying became harder. And I could, my body only could do that for so long. And I finally tucked my tail between my legs. I ran back to Florida, and I said, I can't do this lifestyle anymore. And so I started started working uh, for a rental car company uh, down in Florida. And uh, these guys were making a lot of money renting cars. So my brother-in-law got me the job. I started, started working at the Tampa International Airport in Florida. And um, Tampa is a really cool uh, city, um, but it's also a drug addict's paradise. And there's a lot of stuff moving through Tampa International Airport. You guys know what I'm, you, you guys know what I'm talking about? So I'm sitting here renting cars, making money, and I thought, you know, I could probably make some more money. I'm just going to start this new side job as a drug deal, just a little bit on the side, you know, just some extra money, just a little bit uh, on the side. And uh, one of my friends that I worked with was a big party animal, and he was kind of dealing drugs uh, a lot on the side. And he said, you know, I don't know why you take all those Vicodin every day. He goes, <laughs> you know, you're not even getting high off of that stuff anymore. And then he introduced me to this thing called methadone. Anybody, anybody hear of that? Well, uh, I started taking that, and I wasn't going to a clinic. I wasn't under supervision. I was buying the stuff off the street. I was abusing it. And the next thing I know, within less than a year, I was completely engulfed in its grip. I mean completely. It had totally controlled my entire, every move I made, every single move I made. Um, and I'm sad to say this, and I'm certainly not proud, but there really, up until 2006, there wasn't a drug out there that I hadn't done. So I, I was, I was you, you look at drug addict poster child, there, there's Dave Hodges. Um, and so if, if you guys saw the Facebook page uh, that was about tonight, that was a picture of me when I, the day I checked into, into rehab. Um, so, and I'd overdosed by this time plenty of times, been in the hospital, I lost track of that. Um, and, and I was just really going downhill quick. And so in 2005, I, I suffered another massive catastrophic hit tragedy in my life. And my mother, uh, who had, had been sick all her life with, with addiction and cancer, um, she finally passed away, and I was devastated by her death. Um, and that happened just a few days after Mother's Day in 2005. And I, I took that really a lot harder than I thought I would. Um, I showed up at her funeral. I was uh, wasted. Um, and I was just, like I said, I was circling the drain, going from really bad to self-destructive. You know, there's a difference. I was trying to see if I could self-destruct, physically harming myself, trying to see if I could overdose on purpose. And, but somehow, I don't know how, but I kept a job during this time. Go figure. I kept a job, um, and I was drowning my sorrows, numbing the pills, and all along I thought, I'm in control. I mean, that's what, that's what the addiction tells us. We're in control. I got it. I got it. I got it. Um, and I wasn't. And then finally one day my boss pulled me aside at the airport, and he said, David, you got to straighten up. He goes, I can't, I can't cover for you. you. You've done wrecked three cars, company cars. By this time, I had, cl I had climbed the chain of the rental car industry, and I was probably making about $70,000 a year. 
and I had nothing to show for it. I was living in a little beach apartment down in Tampa. I had, uh, according to the world standards, I had everything. I had a lot of money. I had cars, a company cars, party like a rock star. had nothing to show for it, absolutely nothing. So one day, uh, like I said, this boss pulled me aside, and he said, man, you got to straighten up. So I took some time off to get cleaned up on my own, and that was, that kind of worked. You know, I actually quit the methadone, but I started laying in bed suffering these killer withdrawals, and I started praying for the first time in a very, very long time. And at that time in 2006, I, I started to feel the presence of God again in my life. And I started to remember what I was taught and how I was raised, and I I tried to get off that methadone, and as I tried that, that tug of war continued for my soul. So one night I realized I was one night I realized I was I was doomed, and I knew I couldn't stop, and I didn't know where to turn for help. Never been to rehab before. I was scared to death. So I started to cut the pain away with a knife in my kitchen. And then something, I was getting ready to take my life. And something hit me. I started having this burning, ripping sensation in my chest. And I thought, well, I can't be uncomfortable while I kill myself. So I'm going to saunter on over here to the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. I mean, nobody wants to be uncomfortable when you're, you know, Often yourself, right? You want to be go out comfortable. So I thought, well, I got to go get some antacid. I didn't know if I was having a heart attack. I was nervous. I was like, I'm getting ready to kill myself. I don't, you know. And so um, I went to the bathroom to get an antacid, and I opened the medicine cabinet, grabbed some tums, ate them, and then, then it happened. I closed the medicine cabinet. I think blood was dripping from my arm. And when I closed the medicine cabinet door, there he was. There he was. Was it me? Oh, it was me, but it wasn't me. It's like I was looking at me in the mirror, but it wasn't me. It scared me so bad. I'll never forget that night. Never. I was looking at myself, but my eyes were completely black. There were no color. There was absolutely no color in my eyes. And whoever or whatever that was in that mirror pointed at me, and he laughed at me, and he said, I've got you, and I've got you now. That was fun. I remember right then, I was so scared and so hopeless and so helpless, I remember dropping down to my knees in my little apartment, and I, I didn't just drop down to my knees and cry out to Jesus. I screamed out to him, and I said, Jesus! Please, save me. Save me. Soon after that, I was messed up again. This time, I had a gun in my hand. And I was about ready to take my life. Again. And all of a sudden, at that very moment when I was getting ready to do what I was going to do. My girlfriend at the time happened to walk in, and she said, David, we're going to get you some help. 
Well, I'd never been to rehab before, but within two weeks after that incident, I was at a place in, in Van Cleve, Mississippi, at a place called the Home of Grace. During those two weeks that I was waiting to go to treatment, my, my girlfriend at the time, she said, why don't you go with me to church? Now, I wasn't scared of church. I was comfortable with church. That was comforting to me. That's where I grew up, and I knew those people loved me. She said, why don't you go with me to church tonight? It's Monday night, and I thought, oh, church on Monday night, huh? She said, I'm going to this thing called Celebrate Recovery. I said, okay, I'll go. I wasn't reluctant to go. I just went because I knew I needed to go. And I knew I was kind of hanging on. I was like, man, I got, I got to stay straight. I'm getting ready to go to rehab. I got two weeks to wait. I need to do something. So I get to this big mega church down in Tampa, Idlewild Baptist Church, and they had Celebrate Recovery on a Monday night. And I walked into the doors of that Celebrate Recovery at Idlewild in Tampa, and instantly I felt the weight of the world lift off my shoulders. I knew that I was around a bunch of people where it was okay to not be okay. I was there with a bunch of people that were my tribe, my people, my peculiar people, God's peculiar people, but we were still struggling with stuff, and it was okay to not be okay. And also at that time, I, it's almost like as if it was audible. I heard it in my head. God told me, he said, you'll be involved in this for the rest of your life. I heard it clear as day. And that was 12 years ago, September the 23rd, 2006. That's when I heard that. And I've been doing Celebrate Recovery ever since. He was right. Is God ever wrong? No. Take him for his word. If he says you're going to be involved in this the rest of your life. Y'all, I've tried to throw in the towel several times. I get discouraged. I've started a lot of these Celebrate Recoveries, and they don't always go so great. I've tried to throw in the towel several times and walk away. He won't let me do it. Let's get back to the, let's get back to the show here. So um, I get to this place called the Home of Grace, and um, two weeks later I show up there at this, this, this place called the Home of Grace, and it's a 90-day faith-based treatment program and, um, in Mississippi. And that was the first time, like I said, that I tried to stop this this horrible disease of addiction, and I walked through the doors of that facility, and, I, and like I said, I, I didn't know what to expect in rehab. I didn't know what they were going to do. I didn't know if they were going to, like, zap me with something, or they're going to give me shots, or if they're going to make me stand on my head, or, you know, I didn't know. I was completely oblivious. I was scared to death, and I walked in, and I met with my counselor for the first, first time, and I, like, spilled my guts, and, my, and I cried, and I told him all the horrible things that I had ever done. And I told him all the horrible things that had ever happened to me. And I'm sitting there in a pile of snot and tears. And he looked at me. And you know what he said? He said, David, he goes, I understand everything that you just told me. And he goes, I'm really sorry about all that stuff. And he says, I know what you're thinking. He goes, I know you're thinking that I'm going to tell you something that's going to fix it all and make it go away. He goes, but I can't. And I'm sitting here thinking, what? I've just spent all this money to come to this rehab. I've just spilled my guts in front of this guy. And he can't fix me? What am I doing here? He said, David, I can't, I can't, I can't fix you. He said, but I know who can. 
He said, you're going to be here for the next 90 days, so get comfortable. And he said, why don't you start talking to God and asking him why you're here? So I did. So every day for the next 90 days, I got up early before anybody else at 5 o'clock, and I walked down with my Bible, and I sat down on this river, and I prayed for an hour, and I read my Bible for an hour every day. And then all of a sudden, something happened. The lights came on. The lights came on. I don't know how to describe it, but pretty soon, all my thoughts that were running crazy in my head, they changed, they turned into prayers. And then all this stuff started to slowly make sense. And I started praying, and my thoughts started turning into prayers. And I started reading the Bible, and I was, y'all, I was still foggy, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Like foggy, I'm still coming out of it. Stuff didn't make sense, and so I'd have to read certain things two and three times. And and I told God, I I said, God, I just can't be good enough. I just, I, I can't do this. It seemed impossible. I was just thinking, there's no way. This, this recovery stuff doesn't work. It, do, it just, there's no way I can be good enough. I said, I can't do this. And then God spoke to me in a way that I had never heard of. And he showed me in his word in Romans 6, 16. He said, David, don't you know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, that you're a slave to the one that you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But he said, but thanks be to God that though you were a slave to sin, now you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, now you're a slave to righteousness. Listen. When you think about a slave to something, you think about maybe uh, being whipped and beaten into doing something until it just becomes automatic. And that's what drugs did to me. They whipped me and beat me into doing it until it was just automatic. Well, I started reading the Bible and praying, and that whipped me and beat me into where that righteousness became eventually automatic. So I became, I was a slave to sin and the drugs, and now I'm a slave to righteousness. That made sense to me. So I said, God, I just can't do this. And then I read that, and he said, David, you're not going to do anything. I am. If you let me do it, just sit back and let me take the wheel. At that point, I didn't have a choice, y'all. I was going to die. Death on a cracker mean anything to anybody in here? I was the death on a cracker poster child. And then I read in Isaiah 46, 4, he said, David, even to your old age, I'm going to be the same, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. He said, I've done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. And that's when the lights came on. And I'm like, it is going to be okay, isn't it? Because you're God, and you can't lie. And if you said this, and all the other 7,000 promises that are in the Bible. I'm not going to be the one to call God a liar. Y'all can, but I'm not. All of a sudden, things started to make sense. And soon after, I asked God to take away this desire for all these drugs. And you know what? 
I honestly believe that he did do that. Because I believe that in my heart and in my head and in my soul, I believe that I was sick. I was. I was sick. My mind was sick. My heart was sick. And I just asked Jesus, I said, I don't want to be sick anymore. Will you heal me? And he did. Well, during my stay there at the Home of Grace, my 90-day my stay, I became radically transformed from this kind of like this hopeless, helpless drug addict to me, the guy you see standing here right now. Um, and just before leaving the Home of Grace, I was getting ready to graduate that program. I started to become fearful, and, you know, that chatterbox creep, crept in. What, well, what if you screw up? I mean, you're not going to really make it out there, are you? I mean, it was all that real that you just experienced the last 90 days. I mean, you're going to get out, you're going to get out there, and right at the end of Jericho Road, there's a mean, nasty devil out there, and he's ready to eat your lunch. He's waiting right out there. That's what they told me in rehab. He's waiting. Are you armed up? Are you prayed up? Are you good to go? I was, like, terrified. I'm like, oh, boy, I can't do this. I mean, what if I slipped up and then fear began to grip me? I wasn't really ready to leave, was I? And then God showed up again like he always does in 2 Timothy 1.7. He said, you know what, David, I have not given you a spirit of fear. I didn't give that to you. I gave you a, a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So you go out there to the end of Jericho Road and carry on. So I did. And he also told me, he said, David, you've not received a spirit of slavery that leads to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as a son. And now you can call me daddy. I'm here for you, son. Romans 8.15 says that. Well, soon after I graduated the program, I, I returned home to Florida, unemployed, no job, no car, no home, spent everything I had to go to rehab, I had nothing, but I was okay, and I was at peace because I had this new best friend, and his name was Jesus. That's all I had, but it was okay because that was all I needed. didn't matter. Well, for six months, I kind of floundered around. I worked odd jobs, and I learned how to face this thing called reality, stone cold sober, and that was, you want to talk about squirming, how many of you got it six months into recovery and you're like having to face like bad bosses and like really challenging stuff? It makes you squirm. It's uncomfortable to sit there and smile it off and walk it off and go, you know, I love you, Jesus loves you. And you're like, hmm. you know what I'm saying? It doesn't, I mean, it's not, it's not all smiley faces and puppy dogs and butterflies and rainbows and stuff. It's tough. Well, you know, I, I, I uh, I floundered around for about six months, and, and I, I headed out on a road trip to look for work in another state because I thought, you know, staying here in Florida, these old friends, I, I just, this is not going to work. They started showing back up the house, and, hey, man, you want to go somewhere and go? You know, I'm like, no, but you want to go to church? And they're like, nope, because if you didn't go to church with me, I wasn't hanging out with you. That was the bottom line. Lost a lot of friends. They weren't friends to begin with. Come on. So, um, 
So I went on this road trip up to North Carolina to look for work. There was an orphanage that I thought, you know what, I'm just going to work at this orphanage. It was a place where my brother and sister were uh, partially raised uh, at this orphanage when we, we were growing up, um, foster care program. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just go up there and work. Well, while I was there staying at my aunt's house, the phone rang, and lo and behold, you remember those two cousins that I lived with when I was 15? They happened to have called. They heard I was out of rehab, and they said, you know what, David? We'd love to have you come back and live with us and start your life over, and we're living in Mont Eagle, Tennessee, and we're still doing ministry, and if you want to come, we'd love to have you. I hadn't spoken to them in 23 years. Sitting in the jail cell, you need to go back and live with those cousins. 23 years later, guess what? I went back and lived with those cousins. Started doing some ministry again. Went and made a couple trips to South America and shared my testimony. But what was crazy is when I got up there, I discovered, hey, there's no celebrate recovery going on around here. So I got a phone call from a cousin of mine who was down at Brainerd Baptist, and he said, David, he goes, I've got it. There's some folks over at Brainerd Baptist that want you to come and share your story. I said, okay. So I get down there. I didn't know they were getting ready to start a Celebrate Recovery. It was kind of like this was like the test to see if you could do a Celebrate Recovery. So they had me and a couple pastors down there and just a few people. It wasn't like, you know, a big group. So I go down there, I share my testimony, and the pastor comes up to me and goes, all right, you're in. You want to start a Celebrate Recovery with us? And I'm like, okay. So we attended the one-day training in Hendersonville, and I was hooked. I was like, man, this Celebrate Recovery stuff, awesome. Let's do it. And I've been involved in Celebrate Recovery ever since. So um, having said that, um, God blessed me and allowed me to serve as a ministry leader, and that was a blessing. Um, I grew a lot at that time, helping lead step studies and step, step study groups. So I told you what my life was like before, what caused me to get into recovery, how I recovered. Now I want to tell you what my life is like since recovery, now that I've been in recovery, and what Celebrate Recovery has, has meant to me. So um, God allowed me to be the ministry leader at Celebrate Recovery at Brainerd for about three years, and doing different jail ministries. Have you guys ever heard of Celebrate Recovery Inside, CR Inside? That's where churches take Celebrate Recovery programs inside jails and prisons. So I started doing that quite a bit uh, in, in the rural parts of, uh, of Tennessee and Sequatchie County and up in Grundy County. And, um, and so I, I started doing that jail, jail ministry, and I grew during that. Not only providing that program, that's what helped me grow. And I just wouldn't have made it without Celebrate Recovery and what this program has taught me about myself and my relationship with God and my relationship with other people. That's what this program does. This is a program for life's hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Only one in three people go to Celebrate Recovery because of drugs and alcohol. I mean, this whole world's hurting. We're all goofed up, all of us. So by working these 12 steps and these eight recovery principles, I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and, and, I, um, and, I, and I try to carry this message to others. That's my favorite part of Celebrate Recovery. So if you were to ask me, 
Um, step 12, I think, is my favorite. I have had a spiritual awakening as a result of working these steps, and I do try to carry this message to others. I do it every day. But I didn't plan that. God did. How many of you heard you got to give it away to keep it? It's true. And then principle seven says, reserve a daily quiet time for God for self-examination, Bible reading, and prayer in order to know God's will for my life and the power to carry that out. If I were to get up here and tell you that I get up and read my Bible and pray every morning, that would be a lie. What I can tell you that's the absolute 100% truth is my days don't go so good if I don't do that. I really have to have that time. It's really important. And that is going to help you go forward in your recovery too. So, 12-step, seventh principle, those are my favorite parts of Celebrate Recovery. And so, what have the last few years of my life looked like? Well, God's graciously allowed me to start the Substance Abuse Prevention Coalition um, up in Grundy, and I've been blessed to work with some of the most talented people in the state, actually some of the most talented people in the country in the field of recovery and substance abuse. And now, to tell you how good God is, if you didn't know this already, um, I've been asked to be a part of this new project uh, for the state of Tennessee, Project Lifeline. We're actually in our fifth year now. Project Lifeline allowed me to use what I learned in Celebrate Recovery and in the prevention field with the coalitions, and he glued that together to be able to go out and help others. It was a perfect match. Only God can do that. I look back over the last 10 years of my life, and he allowed me to go through every single little thing that I went through, and he glued it all together and built this thing called life. So only God can do that. Um, God's also blessed me with that woman right there, a wonderful wife, a beautiful best friend, and that, to me, is a miracle because I didn't think I was really lovable. You know, you can get into recovery and you can still do all this stuff and you can be a great person, but what does that really mean, a great person? That's God's way of showing me. He's like, hey, this is my, this is my daughter. Take care of her. And I think about that. And I'm like, man, if I don't treat her right, then I've let God die. This whole new marriage thing, it's new to me. Life's not all puppy dogs and butterflies. But I'm learning. And God blessing me with my wife is another learning for me. So, um, I guess the way I would sum up my life is this way. In Philippians 3, it says that it says not that I have already obtained it or I have already become perfect. What that means is I'm not all that in a bag of chips, and I know it. But I press on so that I may lay a hold of the prize um, of the pro, uh, uh, be, uh, hang on 
I may not have already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay a hold of that for which I was laid a hold of by Christ Jesus. And it says, Brethren, brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it just yet. But one thing I do is I forget what is behind me, and I reach forward to what lies ahead, and I press forward to the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's my life verse. Because when I told you guys that I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, that's who I am. That's my identity. That's where, I, that's where my identity lies. I'm not my addiction. I'm not my struggle. That's not what defines me. First of all, I'm a believer. And second of all, I'm a person in long-term recovery. I'm not a case number. I'm not a statistic. Thank God. I'm a person. We're people. And I'm in recovery. That's all. Not the president, not a Martian, not an alien. I'm a believer, and I'm a person in recovery. It's simple. That's who I am. That's who I am. So, um, you know, I know that my life is a lot better now that I'm letting God take control of it the best way I know how, but it's not necessarily easier. Better and easier, that's not necessarily the same thing. Follow? Um, but I understand now that life's not supposed to be easy. Unfortunately, life's not supposed to be easy. It's just supposed to be lived for Jesus. So when I work these eight principles and these 12 steps of Celebrate Recovery, I understand that it's hardship and struggles that allow Christians to enjoy the triumphs in the joys that God offers. You see, everything happened the way it should have happened. And do you know why everything happened the way it should have happened? God allowed me to go through all the horrible things that I went through. God allowed all you to go through all the horrible things that you went through. For why? For a reason. Because we're, we're all here for a reason. We're right here where we're supposed to be. We're with each other. And I'm with you. And I thank you for letting me share